we at the Deep Dive Podcast support Black Lives Matter. If you want more information on how you can help this incredibly important movement, please go to blacklivesmatter.com. Thank you. Did you know that there are at least 23 million American adults who can't read a one ad? Or a book? Or a job application? That's why we have RIF. RIF is Reading is Fundamental. It's a national nonprofit program that makes kids really want to read. Give a kid a book and you'll give a kid a break. Join the RIF program in your community. Or write RIF, Box 23444, Washington, D.C. Hey, you're pretty smart. How'd you get so smart? Reading. Searching for the unusual, the obscure, the forgotten treasures hidden deep within streaming media. This is the Deep Dive Podcast. Plane in the sun! Get below! Look out! Get below! Dive the boat! Dive the boat! Take it down to 150 feet, steer course 090. Continue to dive. Welcome back, divers. Welcome back to yet another episode of the COVID Conclave. Uh, I mean, the the Corona Congress. Or how about the paltry parlay? Wow. Or the indisposed encounter? Oh. Anyways, welcome back to the Deep Dive Podcast. You're here for another episode, and we're here recording it for you. My name is Manda, infectiously known as the Mandalorian. And with me, oh yeah, with me is my good buddy, my co-host, the man behind the scam, Tom Feeney. Yes, hi, I'm Tom. I'm, I, I, I write I write for Wayne's Shop Movie Magazine, available on Amazon.com, and I have become a professional vaccine tester. So if I slur my words, you know, I'm fine, really. I'm okay. Um, Thank you for your service. I don't know. There are three microphones in here, and I don't know which one to speak to now. because Oh, oh yeah. Well, I mean, our studio is looking a little bit dismal this day these days because i haven't been there in what four months yes Something I've, like that i've remodeled it's it, it's uh Ooh. yeah i took your chair Do I have out. a better desk no i took oh. your chair out though oh, okay fair sorry. enough yeah, yeah. sorry well <laughs> if you're new to our show we are the deep dive podcast we're two buddies who go on this never-ending quest to find the best and sometimes the worst content in your streaming media libraries and we're talking netflix we're talking hulu but we're talking everything else too so today Today is a great day. Today is a a very wordful day. Oh, is that a, is that? Can we do that? No. Anyways, today we're talking about books, books that became movies. Or we're talking about the movies, and then we're talking about their books that came before them that were sometimes and most of the time better. Hey, one of those people who definitely believes books are better. I'm sorry. I know there's an argument. There's like two sides of the same coin there. But I got to say that in my experience, 99% of the time, books are better. Okay. So put it out there. I'm I'm thinking, I automatically think of a quote by Stephen King, who's had a ton of movies made out of his books. Uh, Some good, some really, really awful. Uh, And someone asked him, how do you feel about that? I mean, what are your thoughts? And he basically said, you know, uh, books and movies are like apples and oranges. They're both fruit, but they taste very different. So he does not begrudge uh, anyone, anyone's adaptation of his work because he sees that as an entirely separate entity, which I think is a good way to look at it. That is actually kind of cool. And I mean, if Stephen King said it, then I tend to go with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, God knows how many. He's kind of famous. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and the only, and of course, he, he can be that way because the only time he ever actually directed a movie, it was pretty bad so yeah <laughs> yeah uh ew, no uh, well you know we actually at some point we may get to the wonderful maximum overdrive that he directed but uh, that's another show we're not yeah gonna, i don't think we have enough time no we absolutely do not have enough time um <laughs> but uh oh by the way you know that the clip we heard in the beginning of the show that program riff reading is fundamental uh, that still exists <laughs> yeah. it's still a thing and if you are actually interested in helping kids get books to read, uh, you can go to rifriff.org to get more information. That's actually, it's been around for a long, long time, that organization, and they do a lot of good work, but they, they don't get a whole lot of publicity for it. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't realize that that was still a thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Thing. They're still around. 
Um, and, you know, I would say that I credit my after-school sessions and my book club after-school, like we're talking probably, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago when I was in elementary school, as being a pivotal point in the development of my young mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. You know, we, we are the sum total of our experiences, and a lot of that has to do with reading. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, but good. today is going to be a great episode, I think. Mm, I think so, too. And I think that you should go first because I did the really cool, funny intro. <laughs> oh, is that what that was? Okay. That's oh, fine. yeah. That's Can you fine. add in the applause? Is there like an applause, you know, button you could just push? Yeah. And uh, then, yeah. No, it's broken. Just edit that out. It's broken. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. For me, and you know what? I have a little something as well uh, to say before we, or to do before we get uh, actually into the picks. Um, so as, as, as you said, I mean, there's a, uh, you know, when you try to turn a book into a movie, you're already starting off like with one hand tied behind your back because books have so much more detail and plot and, you know, that trying to adapt even a short novel for the screen can be really tricky. I mean, just take a look at like Lord of the Rings. I mean, oh my gosh, yeah, they made that into a lot of movies and uh, they had to even still they had to leave characters and elements out of it. And sorry, Tom Bombadil, but you Tom know, Bombadil. Yeah, sorry about that, Tom, um, you know, and you can get mixed results. Like when it's successful, you get Harry Potter and the Hunger Games movies. When it's not, you mm -hmm. get garbage like Twilight or every <laughs> Nicholas Sparks tearjerker. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. No, the, sorry, you know what? can't do it. <laughs> can't but do a it. walk to remember. Oh, I can't. I remember I can't. going to the theater, watching that when I was a teenager with my cousins. And my mom, and then we all started crying, except I only cried out of one eye. And I don't know why, but when she asked me if I was crying, my mother, and I said, only out of one eye, she said, okay, well, that doesn't count. So, wow. yeah. I, all right, then. Those, those are tearjerkers, I'm telling okay. you. All but right. what, <laughs> what's great about the written word is that it literally doesn't even, it's not bound by the size of the book or the size of the page. The, the books have this way of creating the environment that sometimes visually it's just so impossible to do. Right. Yeah. And I'm not talking about like, like graphics or special effects or something like that. But I mean, walking down, I mean, even Lord of the Rings to bring it up. And when they first meet Tom Bombadil, these trees are massive. I mean, they're literally the size of the empire state building and there's the forest is golden and there's like leaves everywhere and things are talking and you hear voices. That's really kind of hard to bring to a screen and keep the attention mm -hmm. yep. because I think people who watch movies have the expectation that it's going to be quick, fast paced. And if they're not, they tend to think that, Hey, I'm not interested in this. Whereas where the book it's dependent on how you read it, like how fast you can read, how fast you can, you know, make these images in your mind, mm -hmm. you know? So that's why I personally say the books are usually better, but that's just because I enjoy being captivated by all of these words. Yes. Whereas if I'm watching something, it's somebody else's vision. Right, right. And and the vast majority is the vast majority of uh, movies that have been made from books. The book was better. Um, the only one of the examples that comes to my mind of the opposite would be Jaws. Um, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. So there are some cases where that happens. Uh, so that's, you know, that's actually pretty cool that there are some examples of the reverse being true. Truth. Yep. So are you ready to play a little game? I'm ready. Amanda. Ooh, I'm ready to be shocked and awed. Oh, we're going to play it. We're going to play a game before I, before I <laughs> even get to my picks. We're going to play a game. How do you feel about that, Amanda? Uh, is there money involved? Absolutely not. Great, because I have them. Let's play. All right, everybody, here we go. It's time to play the brand new hit game show, Book or No Book. The only game show on this podcast happening right now. Some <laughs> movies were based on a book and some were not. Our contestant will see if she can guess which is which. Our player today is Manda from New Hampshire. Tell us a little about yourself for the folks at home. Hi. That's your cue. Oh, oh, hey. <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, it's me, Manda, the Amanda Laurie from New Hampshire, still in my bubble, still surviving COVID. 
I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. That's great, Amanda. All right. Thank you so much for being here. So the way we're going to play this game is I am going to give you a series of movie titles, and you are Mm -hmm. going to tell me whether or not they came from a book. So book or no book. Do you think you're ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. No way means stop. Uh, Nope. Not that game. Okay. I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock, and here we go. Book or no book? Pulp Fiction. Book. Sorry, that's Ah. not correct. Number two, book or no book? Rocky. No book. That is correct. Book or no book? Die Hard. Book. Yes, based on a book called Nothing Lasts Forever. Number four, book or no book, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Book. Oh, I'm sorry. That was an original screenplay. And last, book or no book, Blade Runner. Book. Absolutely. Yay. All All right. right. The book is based on the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by the late Philip K. Dick. Okay, so what if I won? I got four out of five, right? Personal satisfaction. No, maybe I got three. Three. So, personal satisfaction. How about that? Is that that okay? You can't can't take that to the bank, my friend. Oh, and uh, you get a $30 uh, Kmart gift card. So, good luck with that. (laughs) Oh, we got to do do more games. Yeah, exactly. Now that I got all the sound effects, uh, we should. (laughs) So, yeah, we'll we'll try to do some more of those because that's fun. Fun, fun. All right, so let's get to my first pick, shall we? Your first pick, yep. Now, accurately trying to portray the everyday trials and tribulations of the American teenager can be like trying to grab smoke with your bare hands. More often than not, movies wind up using actors that look like they're in their 30s and dredging up every awful teenage stereotype we've seen a million times before. Now, one of the few exceptions began life as a nonfiction account of a Southern California high school. In 1979, a young man who was 22 years old walked into Ridgemont Senior High School with a plan to enroll as a student, blend in with the crowd, and write a book about the experience. That young man was Cameron Crowe, and the book was called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, A True Story. Yeah, absolutely. So that is actually a book. That's yeah. no idea. Yeah. Now, Crow got more than he bargained for when he took on this sort of expose. He just expected to observe and report for like a semester. But he actually wound up making good friends at Ridgemont High and got personally involved with one of the peer groups there. That peer group became the focus of the book and then the movie that followed. Is this necessary? That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Is this proper? What is it that gets inside your heads? Uh, is this educational? Awesome. No, but it sure is fun. Hey, bud, let's party. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where only the rules get busted. Rated R. Now, Fast Times at Ridgemont High was released in 1982 and was the directorial debut of Amy Heckerling. And she would go on to direct another teen classic, Clueless. So a little bit of interesting thing there. Now the movie, oh. yeah, the movie has no real plot like the book. It was not a plot. It was just following a group of high schoolers through their everyday lives at school, work, the mall. And it became the prototype for the 80s teen movie. There was angst. There was heartbreak, some tasty waves, and uh, amazing soundtrack. It makes it one of the best coming-of-age movies of all time. But it also uh, had a lot of future stars in it including, of course, uh, Sean Penn, uh, everyone's favorite uh, activist crazy person, uh, who played Jeff Spicoli, who was the surfer stoner character. And also there were future stars like Nicolas Cage, uh, Eric Stoltz, and Forrest Whitaker. And they were in their pretty much their first movies with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So um, a lot of future stars coming out of that. And uh, Cameron Crowe, the, the, the writer, would go on to write and direct Jerry Maguire, say anything and almost famous among others so uh, really a a very nostalgic look at uh you know at the times but 
It's more than that because if you make a movie today, and a lot of people are about the '80s, it looks like kind of a, a like a Gap commercial version of the '80s. It's not real '80s. They just put some you know hairdos and and vintage clothing on on people and you know say it's the '80s. But this was actually done at the time, so it is a much more I think accurate representation of that time than something you would make today trying to recapture that 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 era so and it's and it's also a really funny movie and, and it's got some great characters some great acting it's just a, it's just a lot of fun but it also is is you know it's not just wall-to-wall comedy there's some serious stuff in there too so you know it it has lasted this long as a classic because it is just a good movie but based on a book which a lot of people are not aware of no, but that is crazy. Like, I can't even believe, or I couldn't imagine someone getting away with that uh, in this day and age, just trying to blend in. That's genius. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to do that now with, like, computerized records and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Oh, fun fact. In 1986, yes. the movie was turned into a TV series on CBS that starred Patrick Dempsey and Courtney Thorne Smith. Uh, and it was... <laughs> It only lasted 11 episodes, so that's why nobody remembers it. There you go. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's get <laughs> Not to. Bad. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Let's get to the scores. Um, Four. 7.2 out of 10 on Internet Movie Database and a respectable oh, right. 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not okay. bad. Not bad. Uh, if you subscribe to the Stars uh, channel or streaming service, you can watch it right now. Uh, you can mm-hmm. also rent it. Uh, it's available on the usual suspects like iTunes, Amazon Prime, and YouTube for $3.99. So there you go. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. All right. Not bad. That's It's just very interesting that, you know, people always have this kind of shocked reaction. And I'm, and I'm definitely one. But, like, that you realize, hey, this is a book. And I think that's, that comes from this idea of that you want to know more in the story. And then here's this, this like source material that you can go after and sort of make these, I don't even know, like these experiences last longer as it were. Yeah. And, but, if, and if you get that yeah. chance, read, if you like fast times, of Ridgemont high, the movie, see if you can find, uh, see if you can find the book because it goes into so much more detail and it's more real because they didn't have to make any kind of changes for the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. really, it's, it's really good. It's a really well done, uh, well done book. Oh, very good. Not bad. Not bad. I, that that first pick was actually unexpected, but pretty good. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> what about Alrighty. you? What do you got? So my first pick is a bit unusual in that it definitely comes from a book. Um, and the book is called A Taste of Blackberries by Doris Buchanan Smith. Uh, it was written in 1973, and it is, believe it or not, a children's book. And I say believe it or not because it has a very heavy um, theme of childhood death in it. And it is written from the point or the view of an unnamed author, but who happens to be with these um, group of young boys who go out in the summer of um, you know, the late 1960s to go pick blackberries because back then we didn't use as many pesticides i guess and you could do that but one of the children gets stung by a bee and goes into an anaphylactic shock i.e allergic reaction uh and passes away so the book is really about how the narrator um it in one only deals with the death of of his friend right because of course when you're when you're young like he is like you're led to believe he's in his 10s 11s that kind of thing um you know how does one comprehend what a child must view death as, right? So um, when uh, Doris Smith attempted to get a publisher for this book, everyone was like, no. They rejected her right away because they thought, like you would probably think upon hearing the plot, no, that's too adult. That's that's too adult for, for children, and we don't want them to be um, – we want to shelter them, as it were. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's, it's too adult for me, I think, actually. So. Yeah, it's it's quite sad. Um, but interestingly enough, it despite it being a very prominent um, theme in things like Oliver's Twist, Oliver Twist, right? Um, it, it was sort of taboo at the time. It wasn't until E.B. White reintroduced the theme with his classic book, Charlotte's Web. Now, 
Charlotte's Web is a devastatingly oh, amazing yeah. book. Tears, tears, because tears. Tears. And I, and I say that wholeheartedly because I remember reading it as an adult and just crying. Because it is, it is, it touches those, I think, deep parts of a person that you don't necessarily uh, share publicly, and it's very hard to convey in a movie. But if, if anyone listening has ever watched the American cartoon version of the book, um, that one that scene towards the end where where Charlotte the Spider passes away, it, it's heart wrenching. Even now, as a thirty something year old watching it, it's just, it's tough. Yeah. But because he released it, because E. B. White released Charlotte's Web, it kind of it broke away from that norm of shielding children from death and allowed Doris Smith to bring this story, this very short, short story to um, the masses. And it honestly, it, it has got, uh, gathered so many awards, um, tons and tons and tons of awards. Uh, most notably, the I think the American Literally, Literal Association's most notable children's book. Um, and the reason why I chose it is because I remember... Truly, I remember I was in uh, an elementary school before we moved to the town that I really kind of grew up in. And one of our activities was uh, if your parents were working, um, they had an after school club where you could read books. And sometimes we did, you know, like math problems, but they weren't like it wasn't like a um, like a school designated group. It was just kind of like a hey. And I learned this now, but like, hey, I'm in work. I need babysitting for my kids. Take <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. Um, but we read this book. And at the time, I had sort of made it kind of, I guess, apparent to my teachers that I enjoyed reading. So they gave me this book to read. And I remember vivid memories, even as an adult now, of reading this and being just so upset at learning that somebody could die from being stung by a bee. Now, after reading that, I it always stuck with me. It stuck with me for, I mean, even till right now. And it wasn't until um, this episode that I decided to kind of research it and mm. find out what what is it and what really made it so, I guess, tragic is the word. Yeah. Um, and, and it turns out that the struggle, the everyday struggle that we feel, which is something like denial, grief, uh, loneliness, um, coming to terms with loss, all of those are felt even by children. You know, age isn't a deterrent of feeling these things. It's just how they manifest. And so that it, it's so incredibly poignant that the film that I'm going to talk about, which drew its uh, synopsis and its plot from this book, uh, is probably more well-known than I, I give it credit for. But I am going to talk about the 1991 movie, My Girl. The holidays are back, and so is Mac. Oh, come on. In the movie, Siskel and Ebert give two thumbs up. You ever kiss anyone? No. My Girl, rated PG, at theaters Wednesday. Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, Macaulay Culkin. Is it in a Chomsky or Klumsky? I think it's Klumsky. I think it's Klumsky, too. Yeah, so Anna Klumsky was in there. And the the plot is, is very loosely taken from this book. But the, the key thing that I think most people remember when they think about this movie is that Thomas J, played by Macaulay Culkin, dies after going into anaphylactic shock by being stung by a bee. And then it's up to Veda, who is in a Kumsky's character, to navigate this world without her best friend, determining what death means to her. You know, how does she come up against all these, what we perceive even now as being, quote, adult emotions. So it, it's a very... Like I said, it's a loose connection, but that that main theme is there. And I got to say, it wasn't until I sort of reread um, A Taste of Blackberries that it, it, it occurred to me that, like, people have an innate fear of bees and hornets and things like that. Oh, and yeah. it, it never really occurred to me to be afraid of them. But imagine being so deathly afraid of something that could kill you like that. And not just like, oh, I could die by a shark. Yeah. I understand. I could walk into the ocean and die by a shark bite. But if this person walks out to their home and they happen to be near a bee, like just happen to be near a bee and they get stung. It's mm. just, it's, it's, you're living precariously without even meaning to, or like without right. even the knowing of it. So it's a pretty tough read, even as an adult, right? Because there, there are these things that you don't expect a child to go through. Um, and the, the, the film, my girl is one of those ones that, yeah, you watch it once and it definitely has an impact on you. 
Um, it didn't get necessarily the highest of scores. We're talking about a 6.9 in IMDb, and Metacritic is even lower than a 56. But if you happen to want to watch it, and knowing actually what we've talked about, um, if you subscribe to either Stars or DirecTV, it's free right now. Or it's on the usual platforms, Google Play, YouTube, Microsoft Store, that kind of thing, for rental at three ninety nine. Um, you can get The Taste of Blackberries either at your local library. You can buy it on uh, barnesandnoble.com. You can also rent it from the library. Now, what's great about the library is that they're trying to take all these classic works that are perhaps obscure in some way and turn them into e-versions that you can rent from home without even having to go to the library. Yep. And of course that's way more important nowadays than mm-hmm. it was maybe last year. Yeah. Um, but to go and check out this book virtually, have it downloaded to your app. I mean, it's going to take you probably about a half an hour to read it. It's that short, but it's just, it's worth it because I, it, it makes an impression. I think, I mean, I know yeah. it does. I'm oh, talking yeah. about it 30 years later. So yeah. Something, that, that's my first pick. It's a little bit heavy, but it's something I, I truly put my recommendation behind. Nice. Well, it's also, you know, it's a very, it seems very like a personal, uh, personal thing too for you, you know, because it, it, it uh, yeah. you know, brings up a lot of feelings and memories and things like that, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. So that's good. That's a, that's a really good pick. Very thoughtful pick. Thank you. Yeah, mine isn't. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going kind of sort of the opposite direction from a, uh, from a short kind of book. As we all know, there are some books that are just way too densely packed to adapt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to adapt into a successful feature film. I mean, we talked about Lord of the Rings and how, you know, it took mm-hmm. three films plus extended editions and all that to even come close. But mm-hmm. that hasn't stopped Hollywood from trying. Uh, like other examples from really sort of overly ambitious attempts to adapt a book, like Cloud Atlas, mm-hmm. uh, Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Watchmen is another one. Naked Lunch, Atlas Shrugged, there are, you know, quite a few. There are, you know, there are some that just seemed unadaptable. Just because of hmm. how long they are, how intricate they are, things like that. So this this sort of label was applied to another book that has been considered unadaptable and has been tried several times. My second pick is Frank Herbert's somber, sprawling sci-fi sandworm and spice saga, Dune. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world where the mighty, the mad, all I can see is an Atreides that I want to kill, and the magical, the sleeper has awakened, will have their final battle. A world called Dune. Long live the fighters! Dune. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday at select theaters. Yes. (laughs) Dune. Uh, It was released as a novel in 1965, and it's set in a distant future society that is ruled by the emperor of the known universe. Uh, The most valuable commodity at at the time is a spice called melange. It enhances mental capabilities and is also used in interstellar travel, so you have to have it. And it can be found in only one place in the entire universe, and that's the desert planet Arrakis, also called Dune. The book itself is this so intricate, political, uh, you know, family machinations, noble houses who try to control the production of the spice. And, of course, to, to give it those really nice religious overtones, uh, one of those houses has produced a son that may be a messiah born to free the indigenous population on Arrakis. Now that sounds like a lot, and it is, but it's not even scratching the surface of what goes on in the book. The book itself is a masterpiece of world building. There is so much detail and so much imagination that goes into the different societies, the different houses, the different uh, political structures. At the time I, I read it, I was a teenager, and it was the longest book I had ever attempted to read up till then. And I actually was very proud of myself. I considered it quite the accomplishment when I finished it. So it was like, mm-hmm. good for me. Then I tried to read Stephen King's The Stand, and that took me like uh, years. So <laughs> yeah, I was like, I, that shot me down. Like, nope, 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 nope. Um, now, of course, as I've said, there have been several attempts to turn Dune into a feature film. Probably the most interesting being the version that was proposed in the 70s by visionary director Alejandro Jodorowsky. And if you don't know him or not familiar with his films, Google him. You'll you'll you won't regret it, or you actually might, because 
the guy, the guy's movies are incredibly surreal and kind of psych, you know, psychedelic and, and unusual and nonlinear. And it's, it, he's got quite a style. His version of Dune was supposed to be this really crazy trip visually. And it had an insane cast that had uh, Salvador Dali, the surrealist artist, as the emperor and Orson Welles as Baron Harkonnen, the villain. And the soundtrack was going to be done by Pink Floyd. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, this was never meant to be because of uh, you know, budgetary reasons and things like that. But if you are interested in, in, in that story, there is a truly fascinating documentary about it uh, called Yodorowsky's Dune. It was released a few years ago. And you can rent it on all the major streaming services. And it is amazing. Just to look at the production artwork for the film that they came up with was just absolutely outrageous. And if they had ever managed to put it on screen, it would have been like the craziest thing you'd ever seen, which is pretty cool. So, and he's still alive. Yeah. Oh, he's still, he's still kicking. Absolutely. He's still doing stuff. But uh, I think this project was one that he put a, a lot of time and effort into. And when it didn't, you know, pan out, he just walked away from it. So for the next few years, there were other writers and directors that would come and go on the project, including Ridley Scott. Uh, he came very, very close to uh, directing Doom, but then a family member passed away and he had to kind of put that on hold and then went, went back to work doing Blade Runner, the original. The man would finally get the chance to bring the story of Doom to the big screen was a really unlikely choice, and that was David Lynch. Before bringing Twin Peaks to a, a very unsuspecting populace, uh, he signed to write and direct Dune. Like I said, he was an unlikely choice because he had only directed two previous movies. That was uh, Eraserhead and The Elephant Man and never worked on anything of a scale and budget like Dune would be. Uh, and it was a huge mm. risk. It was a huge risk. And it was a, a, a tremendous undertaking. Uh, and he actually turned another movie down to do Dune. And the other movie that he turned down the chance to direct was this little independent film called Return of the Jedi. So, yeah, <laughs> David Lynch almost directed a Star Wars movie. Try to get that through your skull. That's <clears throat> bizarre. The I'm kind of glad he didn't, though. I, I'm kind of glad he didn't, too. But uh, believe me, if we can find a doorway to a parallel universe where he did, I'm going there. Because <laughs> I want to see that really badly. Just I don't care how bad it is. Now, speaking of bad, the final film from David Lynch was released in 1984. And to put it kindly, it was kind of an ambitious mess. Uh, it has some of the most striking and intricate production design of any film I've ever seen. Uh, it's surrounding some of the most incomprehensible dialogue you've ever heard. You need to have written a term paper on the original novel to even begin to understand what's, what's going on in this movie. And yeah, and so they, they actually, um, when it was first released in theaters, and I remember this because I'm old, they would actually give theater goers, when you, when you bought your ticket to go into the movie, you would get this little pamphlet that basically described the characters and had a little glossary of terminology with it. I'm like, what? That's amazing. I need to read this to understand what's going on in the movie? Uh, because they were afraid, rightly so, that people would just get lost in all the exposition and all the the jargon that was being like set out like constantly. Who are these people? Who are those people? What do they do? What's the... it was really, really, really hard to figure it out. And another reason for that was because vast amounts of the film was cut because they had to support a two hour time frame. So it bombed. Right. Yeah, it bombed. It it critically box office and then lynch went on to do another uh more personal project which was blue velvet which if you haven't seen that oh my god you have to very freaky movie but really good there are a lot of different versions of dune floating around these days uh, universal put out a extended cut for television that added an hour of additional scenes but it was kind of sloppily edited and and it really wasn't that much better way too much exposition and narration uh, so Lynch had his name taken off that version. The one that airs on TV, the extended version right now, is credited as being directed by Alan Smithy, which is a pseudonym for a director that doesn't want his name on a project. And <laughs> Yeah, that's actually true. And written by a made-up name, Judas Booth, which you can figure out what that refers to. A <laughs> couple of trailers. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So that was his little, his little dig in there. 
Uh, now, there are a lot of fan edits online that have been put together by those who are trying to come up with a more comprehensible movie. Some of them are actually pretty good, some of the fan edits. So if that's something you're interested in, you can take a look for that online. In 2000, the Sci-Fi Channel aired a miniseries version of the book that was okay. But you can't keep this thing down. There is another movie version of Dune on the way. Uh, director Denis Villeneuve, who gave us Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, is adapting it once again. And it's got Oscar Isaac and Zendaya, and it's set to uh, be released this Christmas. That's right now. Who knows? Because, you know, the movies and all that are in these uncertain times. Yeah. So it was, yeah. Yeah, it was originally supposed to come out in August. Then it was pushed, oh, back, really? yeah, pushed back to December, but who knows? So I'm <laughs> not sure. So that's my second pick, Dune. I, I actually really like it a lot. It's weird and goofy and way too serious for its own good, but I just I just love the way it looks. I've seen it so many times, like I don't, you know, worry about getting lost in the exposition. Uh, I just enjoy the, the way it is as it is. So yeah, I, I really like it. And I love the book too. So, you know, that works both ways. Scores, uh, <laughs> not good. Uh, fairly respectable, I guess, 6.5 out of 10 on the Internet Movie Database, but only a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, if yeah, you wanna, okay. Yeah. So if you want to see this, you can rent it on the usual suspects. Once again, iTunes, Amazon Prime for four bucks. Or if you uh, subscribe to HBO Max, you can watch it right now. So there you go. Nice. Yeah, Not bad. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good pick. Good pick. Appreciate that. So my second pick is uh, definitely a cult status film. But what's great is that the film, which takes its namesake from the book, whose book is actually based on an ancient text. Uh, Any he, clues so far? Is it Jurassic Park? Because I was almost sure you were going to pick that. <laughs> okay, Jurassic Park. End of the show, everybody. Good night. Uh, no. <laughs> no, but of course, you know, it did pop up in my mind. I just thought, you know, someone might be expecting that I would do it. So I could have be a little bit more clever than that. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the Warriors. We're going back. The Warriors are 27 miles from safety. It's the only choice we got. They're in a war zone called New York City. <laughs> Every gang wants to get them. Every cop wants to bust them. They have one way out. They have one chance. They have one night. The Warriors, rated R. Starts today at the Bruin Westwood, Man's Hollywood, and specially selected theaters and drive-ins. The classic 1979 yes. film. Yes. Uh, which deals with, of course, um, 1970s New York and all these like gangs come together. And it, uh, I'll get into the movie in a second, but it's, of course, not about real gangs. These gangs don't exist. But the book, um, sorry, the, the film is based on the book of the same, nine, same name, The Warriors, by someone called Saul Urich. Now, Saul Urich was a interesting man. And the reason why I say that is because he was born to <clears throat> Jewish parents, and he was from a Jewish working class. But interestingly enough, his parents were very politically active for both communism and the labor movement, right? Which, it, it, <laughs> if we're talking like pre-World War II, those two things don't typically match up that well, right? But his parents were very politically active. They were always having stories at the table, and that fueled his sort of imagination. But it also really, you know, put these sort of ties and these, these like little mini explosions uh, in his family. Once, like, these these big events were happening, like, I don't know, um, ghettos were being formed and, and uh, Poland was up in the air. Um, you know, he started to kind of draw away from his family. Um, it wasn't until the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which, it, if you know a little bit about a history, that was signed in 1939 by Joseph Stalin and someone called Ribbentrop. I can't remember how to... Hmm. I can't even. Um, uh, yeah. And so basically they were like, Hey, we don't want to fight anymore. So we're going to be non-aggressive towards each other, but we still want Poland. So let's basically split it up into all these different pieces and we'll just take it. Never mind what the Polish people think. We're just going to take it. And so the author of the warriors, Saul Yurik was like, I'm not cool with that. I'm going to join the army. And, uh, it basically it drew him away from his parents. So he joins the army, he becomes a surgical technician, and then World War II breaks out. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. And he's quoted as saying, my feelings as a Jew were more important than my feelings as a communist, which is pretty powerful. But it also led him to reflect on earlier works by earlier um, military personnel that really had the same concept. So he drew a lot of inspiration from, believe it or not, something called the Anabasis, which is a ancient Greek expedition famous book that comes in seven chapters. It's basically <laughs> like the Odyssey, ah. but before that. Wow. <laughs> it's called, uh, I think it translates to something like uh, the March of, or the 10,000 March, the March of 10,000, something of that nature. And it deals with an ancient Greek military person. And each one of these, these sort of books or, or chapters, as it were, um, <laughs> deals with the, I guess, idiosyncrasies of being in such a large, massive army and how everyone sort of works together for common goals or works against each other or, you know, what makes you different makes you stronger, that kind of thing. Um, it, it was kind of almost based on that so closely that even uh, the main character in the movie film, in the book Cyrus, was named after one of the main guys in this book, which was literally two or 3,000 years old. Anyways, so to get to the film, the film is... Let's say it's not necessarily the best film ever, but what it, what it does is it... I think it gives the the viewer the idea or it portrays the idea of what maybe viewers back then thought of as being a post-apocalyptic type of world. Yeah, yeah. Here's all these gangs, right? All, all these gangs that like different areas of the city, right? Like, so you have like the Manhattan people and the Coney Island people and whatever, like these little territories as it were. And they all have different themes, right? Like there's some baseball yeah, ones. Yeah, like the Furies. There's yeah, some, the Furies. The, the Furies. Yeah, so they have all these different sort of categories, right? But they all come together as much as there's this tension to, um, I guess, basically save their name, right? Because there's other people going around saying that they did these things. There's, there's always bad apples, right? But the whole film takes place in the night, and it's about this one sort of, oh, not even low, but like really small group who comes to terms with the fact that they're being um, uh, portrayed as like, pariahs and they have to make their way through the city overnight facing each of these gangs right and in different like locations like on the tube or whatever but it's kind of like one of those thrill ride things because you're not sure where this really random looking gang guy with this eerie music behind (laughs) him is gonna pop out (laughs) um but it's 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 one of those films too that once you watch it you kind of like you're like left thinking did i really enjoy that or was it like something that i just need to watch again to really understand um but you (laughs) who's in it there's like a bunch of people um that we know now of course are in it but i can't think of like who was the guy's name uh michael beck maybe was it that was it yeah 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 he so he as he's swan yeah um and he's like the main like you know protagonist guy um but yeah it's it's just i don't know i like those films too that like basically take place uh in one like evening or one shot um and this was like a a little bit of a longer movie but uh a two two and a half hour movie based on one night it didn't do so great its opening weekend in fact uh there were so many threats of actual violence at the screenings um that they were like hey we're gonna pull it out altogether it only ran for a little while um but in reality it actually became a sort of cult film oh, like definitely, to the yeah. point yeah to the point where now people um it's listed in the top fil- uh, 50 greatest films list i believe on uh both entertainment weekly imdb has it in the top 25 yep. uh it's also in like these these lists like you know how you have you know top this top that whatever but it lands among like controversial movies it lands among like um like reflective movies and inspiring movies because it's filmed in such a way that you believe what you're seeing you know it's not like today where you go and watch avatar and you know (laughs) that you're watching a cinematic representation of somebody's vision with this i literally was so dragged into it the first time i saw it that i believe that's what new york was like back in the 70s (laughs) and my mom had to tell me like no that's not real 
It's not um, that far off, but it's not. It's real. not that far off, but yeah. it's not real. Um, so that book has won. Uh, the book has won so many awards, um, and it's one of these things where I think. I think you could call it a crime novel, right? It's in the same version of like John Grisham and, and things like that. But I also find it to be like a super futuristic type of book. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, yeah, I haven't actually finished reading it. I downloaded it through this like uh, e-app that my library in Nashua has. And I'm only about halfway through because it's, <laughs> it's pretty dense, let's be honest. Um, but it's kind of cool that, because of my age group and I've seen the movie first and didn't realize it, me watching like what I thought was an older movie going back and reading the book, I'm able to now reference the movie in my head and kind of put faces to these characters. And it's kind of cool because you know what I mean? Like it, it, it makes me feel more, I don't know, like I enjoyed the movie, but I also get more pleasure out of the movie by what, by reading the book. Anyways. Um, so scores, it, it's pretty high up there in that it has a seven and a half on IMDb. Meta score, Metacritic rather, gives it a 65, which isn't necessarily the greatest, but we are talking about almost 100,000 votes. People have nothing but great things to say about this. Um, where can you watch it? Right now, if you are subscribed to the AT&T DirecTV app or something called Fubo TV, Fubo. you can watch it for free. Or you can get it on the normal you know, channels, Amazon, Google Play, all things like that. Um, but if you're going to do that, I suggest you buy it. And you can buy it right now for pretty cheap on, on uh, iTunes for nine ninety nine. It's worth keeping in your library. Trust me, it's one of those things you're going to want to watch on like, you know, when you have nothing else to do. Um, and it's going to really make you want Coney Island hot dogs if you haven't had them. <laughs> <laughs> so for our friends in, in other places in the world who are not from the sort of northern eastern United States, Coney Island off of New York is supposedly the best place to get hot dogs. And they have the best type of hot dogs there. Um, it's basically a sausage, right? It's made with things that we don't want to talk about, but exactly. apparently it's wonderful. <laughs> it's wonderful. You just kind of shut up and eat it. Um, but that's what it's famous for. So yeah, that's my second pick. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but I highly recommend watching this movie. And if, if I'm honest and I will say this, and I truly believe this. I think you should watch the movie first, because then I think you'll have a better frame of reference for reading the book, and the book will make way more sense. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. Okay. That's that's kind of cool. I like that. All right, and it's a great movie. Yeah. It is a great movie. I mean, it really is. It's funny. It's funny in some areas, but it's also really gritty. I think. And what's the guy? The guy from Roots is in it too. I can't remember his name, oh, but if yeah, you've ever yeah. seen Roots, yeah, um, he's in that. Obviously, not being whipped. Yeah, that movie is that movie's tough to watch. But anyways, um, the Warriors is definitely worth keeping watching with friends because it kind of makes you want to be in a gang, but not like a bad gang, but like a, a you know like a gang of people, like a circle of friends. Like y'all, all your friends wear pink on Wednesdays or whatever. So, yeah, I've yeah. never done that. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> yeah, not bad, not bad. Oh, all right. So let's recap our picks for this episode. For yep, myself, yep, yep. Uh, my pick was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, based on the book, the nonfiction book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High: A True Story. My second pick was the movie based on the Frank Herbert science fiction novel Dune. Uh, also, it made made into a movie in 1984, a miniseries on sci-fi, and now an upcoming film that should be very interesting. I can't wait to see what they Ooh. do with this. Yeah, so those are my picks as well. So, And my pick was 1991's My Girl, based on the book A Taste of Blackberries. And then my second pick was The Warriors, based on the book of the same name, The Warriors. A definite must-read, must-check-out. Yes, and if they made a if they made a movie of my life, they'd call it the Warriors, which would be more appropriate, I think. <laughs> oh man, it's uh, true. It's funny but accurate. It is. It is, and sad in many ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. I uh, I think this was a lot of fun. I had a good time. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe we'll do it again. I don't know. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> all right so but speaking on, of which yes go right ahead it was gonna say if you 
love this episode as yes. much as we loved recording it Preach. and you just need to have more and you need you crave more Say head over to the deep dive podcast.com you can find a list of all of our previous episodes you'll find links to our social media our email our merch store which is pretty awesome if i do say so myself but anyways we have a catalog on our website that you can go ahead and listen to everything. I really love the historical fiction one and the musical one. But those are just a couple off the top of my head. We have 60 plus episodes. That's right. So, so if you're bored as anything, uh, but <laughs> your Wi-Fi still works, why not give it a try? For the love of God. Oh, just Please, do it. You want to? Uh, the, the only <laughs> the only way we're going to beat Corona is by wearing masks and listening to our podcast. Ooh, that's true. You know, I think I think there were some new CDC guidelines that uh, recommended uh, listening to podcasts about streaming media uh, that you may not be aware of at any particular moment in time. Uh, I think, I think that's yep. verbatim. I'm reading that off the CDC website. <clears throat> so, yeah, 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 yeah. So there you have it. I think that's awesome. All right. Oh, so, man. question for you, Amanda. What before this all happened? Uh, the summer was always about what kind of movies? Oh, I don't know. Slasher films or like uh, teenage romance films, that kind of thing. But overall, like what kind of movie do they want to put in the theaters during the summer? Summer blockbusters. Exactamundo. So for decades, moviegoers have flocked into theaters to beat the heat and watch a big budget movie. But it wasn't always that way, I tell you. And that's what we're going to talk about on the microcast next week. The evolution Ooh. of the summer blockbuster. And our microcasts are pretty awesome. You get just that little taste of our podcast without being totally overwhelmed. It's an appetizer, really. It really, it's an hors d'oeuvre, as they say in Germany. Oh, is that? Yeah. Wait, what? No. Never mind. That's, never mind. Okay. Never mind then. We'll just uh, edit that out. All right. So on behalf of the amazing Mandalorian and myself, Tom Feeney, please stay healthy. Wash your hands. Please, for the love of God, wear a mask. Don't give anybody a hard time about it. You know, it's just a simple little thing. Okay? Thanks. Appreciate it. You divers are the greatest. Yes. The best. That's right. So we want you especially to wear a mask so we can't recognize <laughs> you on the street. <laughs> Truth. All right. Take care, Alrighty. everybody. See ya. Bye. You can find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram feeds on our website, thedeepdivepodcast.com. If you like us, please subscribe. All clips are intended for educational use only and not to infringe on existing copyrights. Our theme music was produced by Ryan Blaney and EchoCraft. Thanks for listening. podcast is a production of automaton media i bet you like to read a lot too print is dead